Welcome to The Impostress. The Impostress is hosted by me, Michael Knox, and Graham Drew, two rather insecure frauds who will be exploring the motivating and debilitating experiences we all have with imposter syndrome, with a sneaky suspicion that it might just be your superpower, if you let it. It's fantastic. You're about to have a chat to Dr. Valerie Young. Uh, I know. It's a bit intimidating though, right? Because she actually knows what she's talking about. Yeah. She's talking about a a subject that you've been pretending you know what you're talking about and along with Rachel Lowndes, equally someone who knows what they're talking about on this subject of imposter syndrome. Mm. Do you reckon they make money out of talking about imposter syndrome? I mean, yeah. Do they get paid to talk about imposter syndrome? Oh, yes, they probably do. Because we, we don't. No, but we do it for the love, Michael, and you can't put a price on that. But I think we could. I think we could throw it no, out you there. You can that... put a price on that. Let's put a price yeah. on that. <laughs> we could. We could put it out there that someone might like to sponsor the imposterous. Yes. They could. Who would be a good sponsor, though? You've talked about post-it notes because you have an attraction to my use of post-it notes. They could sponsor the imposterous. Well, I've often had a suspicion that you personally are sponsored by post-it notes because they're always in the background. Well, maybe if our our listener has an idea of who might like to sponsor the imposterous, they could put it forward or someone who might like to come on and, you know, have a chat. If, dear listener, you know post-it notes or indeed anybody anywhere... Who would be interested in um, being part of a world-changing global social psychological experiment, which is changing the lives of millions, then give us a call. Yeah, be in touch. That'd be good. Well, anyway, let's um, let's hear what you um, had to say to Dr. Valerie Young before we were paid to do this. Before then. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to season two of The Imposterous. Who knew there'd be more than one season? Well, here we are with season two. And throughout the first season, we started to realise that it's far from just us lowly advertising people that get affected by imposter syndrome. It kind of goes everywhere. And there was a certain person's name who kept being mentioned as we were going and investigating this world. And that was Dr. Valerie Young. Now, Valerie Young is, if there is indeed a centre of the universe when it comes to imposter syndrome. I think Valerie would be very, very close. Um, She's been working in this field for almost 40 years and very much is a leading light within the whole investigating, discovering, overcoming imposter syndrome. In fact, her email is impostorsyndrome.com. So if there was any other credit that was needed... It would be that. And also we're welcoming back Rachel Lowndes, who was one of our most listened to episodes from season one, who used to work in advertising in her old days and has also now ventured into the field of imposter syndrome and how to help people from all walks of life overcome it and maybe even flip it into something that's useful, motivating and empowering. So welcome, Valerie, and welcome, Rachel. I'm thrilled to be here. Hello. <laughs> so with season two, what we want to do is try to broaden our horizons outside of just purely advertising. 
because we know that imposter syndrome affects people from all walks of life. But one of the things that we're kind of curious about is, is there a particular type of person or a particular type of job role where it's more common? Is it just kind of confined to people who deal in subjectivity like us advertising creators do, you know, to people that have to kind of perform as part of their job? Because when you're on stage, you're judged and that's when scrutiny comes in. Or does it just affect absolutely all walks of life? You know, do scientists, for example, also suffer from imposter syndrome? In essence, do astronauts feel like frauds? That's also my effect to do a shorter version of a very long question, which I'm not very good at. Being, um, there are other factors, like there's situational factors and there's, uh, you know, other core reasons. So being one of the, or one of the only or the few to represent your entire group, so being the only woman or the only person of colour or the only person with a disability carries great expectations to not let your group down, which can cause stress. And this is known as um, stereotype threat. It's a, a phenomenon discovered by psychologist Claude Steele at Stanford University. And it's an unconscious fear of confirming a negative stereotype which causes stress. Now, Kitty Lunn actually spoke about this in her episode, like not wanting to be that subservient female serving tea. Being the token female Asian in the room, I always express things that um, I want to say rather than keeping quiet the subservient female who make tea. No, I'm not doing that. So my advice is take advantage of what you are and who you are. Uh, we don't need to be afraid. Right. But she also uh, that also puts her under a lot of pressure uh, to perform at the level she's at beyond being the token female in a room of white men. You know, and an Asian female as well. Uh, there's also other situational factors like um, students as a whole experience imposter syndrome to a high degree because they're literally being assessed and graded day by day. Solo practitioners, you know, people working alone. Julian Cole touched on this, like being um, being a strategist is quite a lonely job because you're kind of like the you're not really part of a group. So. In that sense, you have no one to, to bounce ideas off and you're kind of left to evaluate your own performance. Uh, those working in creative fields, so subjectivity yeah, plays a part in the way you're performing. So, um, you know, you're only as good as your last book, your last play, your last ad in this, you know, in, in terms of advertising. And, uh, you're, and you're being um, assessed by people whose job is quite often a little bit harder. And those working in rapidly changing uh, informational dense fields like science, technology and medicine. So, Rachel, you're kind of saying it's, it's kind of across everybody. It pretty, pretty much. much touches everyone, yeah, in all walks of life. It doesn't differentiate. It's not a syndrome. It's not a disease of any kind. So it's not like you can catch it. It's, it's a, a feeling. And advertising itself is an industry that definitely fuels self-doubt, right? We've got that whole tall poppy syndrome. We kind of quite often in the creative uh, aspect, we're tearing each other's work down. Um, Esther touched on this in the Black Leaves episode. So, yeah, it can develop from multiple factors. Well, I was just going to jump in, especially specifically about the astronaut. I thought that was, that was so interesting that you, you said astronaut. Uh, There's a guy named Mike Massimino, um, who was a working class kid, grew up, achieved his lifelong dream of being a, an astronaut. And um, he wrote a book called Spaceman. Do you get the Big Bang Theory? I'm sure you do. That television. Yes. He's yes. been on that a few times playing himself. And he I actually heard him on a podcast talking about how before he went on his first space deployment, 
he had imposter syndrome on his first shuttle deployment. In the astronaut program, too, I mean, I felt like, you know, it's strange. I mean, I, at times I felt like, you know, these guys are so tremendous. These men and women are so tremendous. What am I doing amongst them here? But at the same point, you know, I felt like I did have something to contribute and there were things that I could do well. And I just wanted to do well. I wanted to be a part of the team. I wanted to do the best I could. You know, I just worked really hard. But I always felt like, particularly I think at MIT, with the level of brain power they have up there, I, I wasn't your typical MIT student. I felt like, whatever that means, you know, I felt I really had to work hard to keep up. I read his book. I got to meet him. I was fortunate at Columbia University where he's now teaching an engineering department. I happened to be speaking there that day. So I met him and I said, you know, Mike, I, I read your book and I don't think you have imposter syndrome. He said, you don't? I said, no, I think you had, holy crap, I'm going into outer space. And <laughs> I'm in a rocket syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I said that, Graham, is his whole book is a case study in non-imposter thinking. When he was at MIT, he said the first year he did fine. The second year, he said it kicked his ass. He got a 12 in one, in one exam. He got an 18 in another exam. Crushingly disappointed, almost dropped out. But then he got together in a study group with other failing students, raised their grades together, and voila. A few years later, he failed his qualifying exams to get the PhD. And he had to get the PhD to get into the NASA program. Again, almost dropped out, but he got together with folks. They helped prepare him. He did more research and he passed. So what I'm saying is this whole book is is an exercise in resilience and, and actually in non-imposter thinking. That's why I said, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think you had imposter syndrome, Mike. So when you say non-imposter thinking, what is that? Well, it comes down to, and, and I'm, going to bleed into, you know, another kind of conversation here is mm. very often you hear people say that imposter syndrome is a good thing, right? Because it keeps us humble. Mm. It makes us work hard. And, and I think it's a, a false choice uh, that you can be an arrogant jerk or you can feel like an imposter or that you need to be outrunning the no talent police to be motivated to work hard. And I think there's a third choice, and that is to in terms of non-imposter thinking, is to think like a, a humble realist. I call it a humble realist. You know, we often hear the statistic that up to 70% of people have had these feelings at one time or another, which kind of begs the question, what's up with the other 30? Right? Like, what's going on with them? So, some part of them is that proverbial smartest guy in the room, the arrogant jerk, and we don't want to be them. But there's another part in that group, Graham, who are, they are genuinely humble, but they have never had imposter feelings. And and but they're no they're no more intelligent, cre uh, you know, intelligent, creative, talented than the rest of us. It's just in the exact same situation where we might feel like an imposter. They're thinking different thoughts. But but it's not a pep talk. It's not like you've got this and you can do it and you deserve to be here. They think differently about competence and what that means. They have a different response, a healthy response to failure, mistakes, constructive criticism and to fear and self-doubt. That's what I mean by non-imposter thinking. Hmm. It's, but I, I like the they like the term humble realist. That's great. So it's, it's kind of a, an internal pragmatism in a way where they manage to sort of separate the emotions from it and go, okay, you know, this thing goes so well, but that's fine. That doesn't affect me. And they've, I don't, I want to say crack the code, but that's not right, is it? It's just a different way of reacting to what's happening. Yeah, I think that they recognize that, you know, they have the right to have an off day. 
or not understand or ask questions or ask for help. And, and they, you know, people feel like imposters. When we do those things, we often feel shame because we mm-hmm. feel like if I was really intelligent, capable, competent, I'd be able to step into this new role and to hit the ground running. Or I understand everything that people are saying, you know, and the fact that I have to struggle to master something or I don't know everything proves I must be an imposter. So I think they're more forgiving of themselves. And, and like I said, they have a, a healthy response to even constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of us, when you feel like an imposter, you are wounded by even constructive feedback, right? We, we let it mean more about who we are as a person. So if somebody says, you know, your, your ad was inadequate, we hear I'm inadequate. Yes. People who are humble realists, they seek out constructive feedback because they know that's what they need to get better. They see it as a gift. They feel like, it, you know, if they, the person didn't think I was worth taking the time to give me this information to get better, then they wouldn't have wouldn't have bothered. That's interesting. That's very, I mean, it's you hear that a lot within the sort of creative arts, which is that, you know, you can get 100 reviews and the only one you listen to is the bad one. Mm-hmm. Right. It's kind of that that is uh, you, almost like all of the praise is silent. All you look for. And I have I think a lot of guys get this. You're just looking for the ones where they're going to dig you and they're the ones that speak the loudest. Right. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about and we said, you know, this new series is about not just talking about advertising, but it's what we know. And we talked in the past. We've talked a lot about corporate cultures and about, you know, the role in which the environment in which you work can play such a big role in sort of helping people feel like they belong, you know, feel included. You, you mentioned before, um, Rachel, about minorities, you know, and about how minorities can be a huge trigger for that because, you know, in many ways, they literally aren't the same as everybody else. Mm. Um, what I'm interested in is, you know, what role does the environment and corporate culture play in that, you know, or are we just overestimating it? You know, is it not really about, where you are, but rather at who you are, you know, and do we need to stop making imposterism somebody else's problem? You know, how, so what, what is the role that corporate culture plays in imposter syndrome? What do you think about that, Rachel? Well, I don't think we're overestimating a need to belong because common sense tells us that belonging fosters confidence, right? So the more people who look and sound like us in a workplace or the field, the more confident we feel. Uh, So it stands to reason that if you are one of the few or the only who looks or sounds like you, then you're more apt to feel like an outsider and like you don't belong and therefore imposter syndrome. Um, And we also see in business a lot these days with the global economy, a really transient culture. So there's a lot of cross-pollination, cross-business. And, you know, we see that in advertising with creatives moving all that kind of thing. So, I mean, Julian Cole kind of talked about this in his episode where he mentioned that Um, when he moved to New York, he was almost afraid to stand up and talk about his own skills because uh, he didn't feel like he belonged. When I moved to New York, my experience, as I have talked about before, I kind of talk it down. I talk it down by saying, hey, I worked at backyard agencies. I should stop saying that because it's it's kind of talking down that experience. And I did that when I moved to New York, I had massive imposter syndrome because I'd never been taught the fundamentals of strategy or never had proper training. But the second thing I did was rejected all the experience that I had in Australia. And what that did was I didn't make any work for the first two years of being in uh, New York. And as creatives, 
we know that is like kills you, kills you on the inside. These skills are exactly what they needed in order for the company to succeed and for him to succeed, right? So it's bringing that out. So that kind of sabotaging behaviour that comes across from imposter feelings, um, you know, when you don't, you don't belong, when you don't feel like you belong, yeah, that co- the culture of not belonging brings out these imposter behaviours like self-sabotage, you know, flying under the radar, holding back, um, and that all that stuff kind of causes quite a lot of stress for people. So I think a sense of belonging is very important in, in industry cultures, yes. How about you, Valerie? I mean, have you come across any, I mean, you've spoken like any everywhere from Google to NASA to IBM. Have any of them got it right? Do any of them have anything that they do that we could learn from? Yeah, you know, I spoke at, um, actually I visited Zappos. I can't say I spoke there, the, the big mm. shoe company. And, and the signage on the walls there, you know, really kind of reinforces this kind of growth mindset and entrepreneurial mindset. Um, I was at, dare I say, Facebook. I spoke there and there was a poster on the wall. They have a, a, a print shop where employees can go make posters anytime they want and just put them up on the wall. So there was Black Lives Matter poster. This was five years ago. There was uh, imposter syndrome posters, but one of them was, now I'm going to use some salty language, so I hope it's okay. That's totally okay. I was going to ask if they did any TikTok posters. Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was pretty funny. (laughs) No, it was a um, Ernest Hemingway quote. They said, the first draft of anything is shit. So I think that the cultures that underscore like, look, you're not going to get it right the first time. You know, we all make mistakes and you know, try, try again, I think are great. On the flip side, there's cultures like uh, medical school, for example. I was speaking on this podcast for the British Medical Society and it was a medical student and a resident. And they were lamenting the lack of positive feedback. So you work so hard in medical school and you get no positive feedback. At the end, you take an exam the best you can do is no concern. That's the best you can do. We have no concern about you. The point that I made with them, though, is that I want them to understand that whether they knew it or not, that's the culture they signed up for. They didn't know that going in, but this is what this is what it is. So I want them to realize this is not about you. This is the culture you're in. Same thing in, in academia, higher education. People are always writing grants and proposals and submitting papers to publications. No one is writing in the margins. Good point. Nice sentence. Nobody's doing that. They're all just writing critique and criticism. And if you don't understand that that's the culture, you can be blindsided and take it very personally. That's an amazing perspective. Mm. Um, did, did purely as a... Um... As a parent, the conversation I've had with lots of other parents is around this idea of praising and when is it too much or when is it not enough? Because you just kind of go, you don't want to grow up your kids within the environment of them just thinking everything's amazing because life is not like that. But at the same time, you want them to feel confident and you want them to feel backed and you want them to feel that they've always got, you know, unconditional love. And so striking that kind of balance, I, I personally don't know where the line is, but you kind of think, yeah, you also have to be a little bit real sometimes. And I love that idea of it's not you, it's the culture that you're in. And, you know, and, so, and if, if you've become a doctor, actually your job is to, it's great if people don't die. You don't need a pat on the head, right? <laughs> right. Your job is that. Your job is not to get, woohoo, you know, really nice stitching. Your job is to make people well and you need to get your validation elsewhere. Um, 
that for the point that it's you know it's the culture and not you I think is very interesting mm. and Valerie you've got a, a great um fondness for this notion in fact it's it's on your website the notion of playing bigger you know mm. the idea that people can't be held back by the syndrome by by their imposter syndrome or they shouldn't be held back by the imposter syndrome and you believe that everyone loses when bright people play small what does that look like what does playing big look like and what does playing small sound like can you just dig into that for me sure well, i think playing big is different for everybody you know it's not always climbing the the corporate ladder um it can also be stepping away from a very challenging corporate job and deciding to start a small business. Uh, but it could also be scaling your business. Uh, I think you need to think about what you want your life to look like as you think about what playing big means. But it, it means being able to walk into a gallery with your art and and trying to present it and see if you can get a, get a showing there or or writing your book or you know starting again starting your business or for one per, for one person playing big is just starting an ad agency and they want to keep it small for lifestyle reasons for another person playing big is scaling it and having mm. you know this international company with you know 100 people who work there so it really is about understanding you know what what are my goals and how might confidence and how might imposter syndrome be holding me back you know i got an email from a woman who is a, a urologist and and it's a very male dominated field and she's in the the, the military so also very male dominated mm -hmm. and yeah, and this is not about tooting my horn about my book, but, but the reason she wrote was to say that now she is performing more challenging surgeries that she was holding herself back from. It had never occurred to me that there would be a physician out there who was holding back from performing more complicated surgeries uh, because of confidence. I mean, it makes sense. But so for her, playing big was doing more complex surgeries. Mm. What, do you, what do you think about that, Rachel? I mean, you've, you've switched careers. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know what playing big was like for you in advertising, but what is it now? Or well, is it doing it in itself, doing what you're doing? Is that playing big? You know, the fact that you're just doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to Valerie's point, what, well, kind of what I feel like she's saying is that playing big is doing the things that you never thought that you would do. And I love, Valerie, how you said at the beginning about how you define your success, because, you know, we all know what the external metrics are, but actually you're not doing it for that. You're doing it for you. And I love the idea that actually success for me is that I can run a business and then spend 50% of my time with my family. It's not about the money, right? Mm -hmm. I think, think that it should be your own success, not anybody else's. And I think it's very difficult for people to realize and get to that place. Now then, there was a comment made by um, Cindy Gallup in series one, who is you know a leading light in terms of equality, shaking up the system and everything else. There's been a lot of, talk about this comment and I'd love especially with you Valerie you know being the preeminent expert in this field just to get your opinion on her take on imposter syndrome Steve could you play it for me please and I think you know given the theme of your podcast I want to say to our listeners that there is no such thing as imposter syndrome there are only people and there are only especially women, because regrettably, far more women think they suffer from imposter syndrome than men. There are only women who have never been appreciated, valued, promoted, paid, celebrated, um, held up to acclaim in the way that they deserved. 
that's the only reason people think they have imposter syndrome. So what do you think about that, Valerie? It's a really interesting perspective. It is an interesting perspective. And, you know, you know what I loved about um, Cindy's interview? And I listened to the whole thing is I thought she did this outstanding kind of takedown of sexism in the industry and in the world. You know, I loved when she said for International Women's Day, we need to pay women, not celebrate them. Uh, as a fellow speaker, you know, she's been asked to do things for free for the exposure. I always tell people, people die of exposure. <laughs> 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 I, don't, I don't need exposure. So I love that. Um, and she's right. You know, I agree with the blanket statement that, you know, I, all of us, you know, women, I'd say I also had people of color and others, we all need to have our work appreciated, valued, celebrated, championed, uh, rewarded, and so on. And the reality is, imposter is not all in our head. We don't exist in a vacuum. That societal messages that devalue uh, a group of people or their work comes into play. You, you know, you cannot dismiss that. I have a whole chapter in my book called It's Not All in Your Head. So that is all real. Let me tell you where, where I differ. Um, the comment felt dismissive to me. I loved her confidence. <laughs> she said it very confidently, but it felt dismissive. It was kind of like saying, you know, you can't just say by extension, no imposter syndrome doesn't exist. It's like saying, you're not depressed, Graham. You just live in a depressing world. That's that's kind of what one of my my takeaway from it. It was also I felt simplistic, and I don't mean that in, in a critical way, but to me it was a very limited understanding of where imposter syndrome comes from. Certainly, societal messages being on the receiving end of stereotypes about competence and abilities, um, you know, uh, unconscious bias, institutional racism, sexism. Those are real and those are huge factors. There's a big intersection between imposter syndrome and those issues. But as we've been talking about and some of the things Rachel mentioned, there are situational factors. People in certain occupations are more prone. You can't dismiss the role of organizational culture, of family messages. Um, all the research I've seen on racial groups finds, for example, that imposter syndrome is highest amongst Asians and Asian Americans. So I can only speak to research in, in the U.S., Part of that goes to family messages, not wanting to shame the family, this collective sense of, of success within the family, but also the social reality of needing to be that kind of model minority, the stereotypes that people heap on, on people um, who, who are, are Asian as well. So that's where that kind of intersection of family and social dynamics come into play. So she's right. And there's a lot more going on at the same time. So you can't by extension say it doesn't exist, which does feel dismissive. I don't think we should be telling anyone they don't have imposter syndrome. I don't think we should be telling anyone you do have imposter syndrome. I think it's like for us to decide like what, you know, what, what is happening? Does this feel real to me? Uh, and not to have other people tell us whether we do or don't have it. Mm. It's about the the kind of the, the duality of labels as well, isn't it? It's kind of because... On the one hand, obviously, labels are really damaging because it confines you. But the other said it also enables you to identify that there's this thing going on and you're just not crazy, but actually it's something that's real. You know, it doesn't. Yeah. And, that it, and it feels real to me. You know, I mean, yes. what I felt it was being I was the first generation of my family to go to college. I'm in a doctoral program at the same university where my mother was working as a janitor, as a custodian. Um, you can't tell me I did not experience imposter syndrome it being being a 21-year-old you know, doctoral student. Right. 
And I also think, you know, we don't live in a world where I mean, it'd be nice if everyone's work was valued and appreciated and championed and, and so on. But sometimes we do a crappy job, <laughs> you know, just taking it down to the individual level. I mean, I don't think we all should be getting constantly validated when, in fact, maybe what I really need is just somebody say, you really need to work on that or I've seen you better. Here's where you yes. need to. We need to fix things and to recognize, you know, our failures and shortcomings and et cetera. Yeah. Sometimes you just don't deserve validation, right? It's true. It's true, regardless of how hard that is. What do you think about that, Rachel? Well, I mean, obviously I support everything that Valerie says, but um, I think with the, the fact that we can't be amazing all the time, it's not possible to be amazing all the time. We learn through our dark spaces, you know, the things where we where we face adversity and setbacks is where we learn and it's really about how you deal with them. And so, um, I mean, Cindy's statement was very bold. I thought uh, in some ways it allowed people to feel like they could just let go of the fact that they have imposter syndrome. But there's also, as Valerie has rightly said, there's, there's contextual reasons why we may feel it. And it is up to you individually to decide whether those are affecting you and the way you think about fear and failure and mistakes and, you know, and, and success. So, yeah, it's an individual thing. And, and rightly or wrongly, she can't really diagnose you or tell you there's no such thing as imposter syndrome because there is. <laughs> and Valerie's work proves that. <laughs> I can jump in with an example. Um, I had the opportunity to go to New York and do this six minute TED talk. They only gave us six minutes. It was at TED headquarters. It was the most stressful thing I've ever done in my entire life. Mm. I've spoken on this topic for years and I, I can't tell you, I spent hundreds of hours writing that six minutes and practicing it and timing it over and over and over. At the end, we all know what it's like to feel like you crushed it, right? Where you walk off and you're like, you know, nailed it. I did not feel that way. So I was really disappointed for like 48 hours. And then I kind of got over it. And people would say to me, oh, so you felt like an imposter. I said, no, I didn't feel like an imposter. I was disappointed because I know how hard I worked at. I mean, if you watched it, you would not go, oh, she failed. Right. But in my heart, I know what it like. I didn't have that feeling. You know, so the reality, <laughs> I sent it to a guy who's done a lot of coaching with me on speaking. And I said, I told him I was disappointed. And he, he said, yeah, you've been better. <laughs> <laughs> he said, even better. He said, here's the thing. He said, you wanted it too much. You tried too hard. Next time, just have fun and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And see, I like that kind of really direct feedback because he was absolutely right. No, that's so true. It's so true because he could have just gone, no, 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 no. But actually far more useful to you. It's like, no, you're right. Your feelings are genuine. You have been better. Mm -hmm. And that's much more useful. <laughs> Yeah. It actually makes you feel better, doesn't it? Because oh, okay, yeah. I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in in that sort of um, in digging into imposter syndrome, because I see because it's got the word syndrome after it, you think it's bad and it's all bad, and an awful lot. I mean, actually, the start of our podcast was this sneaky suspicion that it's not all bad, and actually, in talking to a lot of world-renowned creatives, they've kind of learned to almost weaponize it in a way. You know, they, they've taken those feelings of self-doubt, those insecurity, and they turn them into fuel. You know, they have flipped their relationship with it. I mean, these people have been working, in, you know, 20 plus years. And we talked to, you know, to Nils Leonard and his whole thing, his fire was that he got a lot of criticism and he was kept down in the early part of his year. And, and he still, even though he's now a spectacular success, 
he still just wants to prove the motherfuckers wrong. And it works, you know, that's what he uses. You know, I don't want to be like everyone else, but maybe because I spent years looking at the seventh floor at Abbott Mead or the, you know, creative sending me emails going, you know, chain of command. Literally that happened once. Kind of going, you know what? I don't want to be as good as you. I want to be far better than you. I want to fucking eclipse you, man. I want to make you look like a fucking dinosaur. So, uh, forget, you know, the, ven- the venom is real. <laughs> Other ones um, were people talking about how you don't learn anything from winning. I mean, and it's interesting, just what you just said, Valerie, you know, failure is actually your best teacher. When you don't do well, that's actually a really, really good thing because that's what you learn from. Another one was that this idea of not belonging comes from unfamiliarity. You know, you literally don't belong. But that actually is where the creativity happens. You know, not belonging is exactly what I want in my creative department. If I had a load of people that were the same, we wouldn't come up with anything new. How do you, you know, what do you feel about that, um, Valerie, in, in terms of imposter syndrome being something that protects us from being average? You know, that, that actually it is the thing that pushes us. Do you think it could, do you think it can be good? No. <laughs> I'm going to push back on that. I feel no, really good. strong because there's so many downsides, Graham. You know, there's so mm. many people who are dropping out of school right now or are, uh, play, you know, playing smaller, taking jobs way below, you know, th- their potential or not scaling their business or not doing their surgeries or whatever it is. To me, there's so many consequences or burning out, right? Because they are overworking and over preparing, which is a coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, a lot of people use, but you know, there's a tremendous burnout. And again, I don't want my motivation for working harder to, to come from trying to outrun the no talent police. Um, you know, the, here's the question I would ask. Why do you have to feel like an imposter to want to prove people wrong or do a great job? Or a, we, obviously failure is, is a great teacher. Um, you know, why do we need to be shouting down our negative inner critic when in fact we could just... Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work to me, shouting down my inner critic. I'd rather just learn how to think like a humble realist and to, to, to go with that kind of third choice. And the thing about working hard, you know, the research shows that that is more motivating for men. That like, I'll show the motherfuckers, that's more motivating for men. And I'm going to show them and I'm going to work hard. Women, and, and we're generalizing, right? Not all women mm. do one thing and all men do the other, but women are more likely to kind of pull back in the face of, of fear or uncertainty or, or lack of confidence. So if that strategy works for you, that's great. But I guess I question why you have to feel like an imposter to be motivated to do your very best. So it should come from a positive space rather than requiring a negative space for you to overcome because isn't. Yeah. And I understand the tendency, like you have this feeling, so you want to try to put this positive spin on it, but I want to offer a, a, a third choice um, that it doesn't have to be either or. Mm. Yeah. How about you, Rachel? Well, Any motherfuckers mean, you want to prove wrong? <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think I touched on it before. I found imposter syndrome feelings to be very detrimental to my own career and success. And, um, you know, sabotaging behaviors as a result of them haven't done me any good. You know, they created more stress, anxiety, and eventually burnout in my career. And it was very much stunted by that. And it wasn't until I became aware 
of those sabotaging behaviours and what they were doing to me um, that I was able to overcome them. You know, like all those, oh, I should, I should show them kind of statements, right? They just don't, they don't really help. They just perpetuate the cycle of shame and, and that I'm failing and that I should be doing something, you know, like not actually addressing the problem, which is underlying it. So, you know, um, I understand people weaponize it. I, I kind of get that. As Valerie says, I do, I personally, from just talking to people and listening to this podcast, I've noticed that it's very much a male perspective. Um, and I think women just have to, I mean, we quite often just, we're kind of almost taught to hold back anyway, like just from a gender perspective, the way we're brought up in schools, where we're taught to be, you know, like kind of hold back, be ladylike, do this, do that, you know, so it's not something that we're kind of really encouraged to do anyway, is to go forth and show the motherfuckers, right? So... (laughs) I think um, <laughs> I think just holding back a bit is quite a, a, a female thing. Um, you know, and sometimes you do want to show people, you know, I mean, I, I had a section of my book for artists and writers. I said, save all those rejection letters, right? <laughs> and wallpaper your room with them because that's going to come yeah. in handy when you're accepting your Academy Award or when your bestseller is out there. You know, so for some people, it does become fuel. I just question whether you you have to feel like an imposter to to get there. Mm. A lot, all of those things that I mentioned are coping strategies. And, you know, wouldn't it be better if you just didn't need to have them <laughs> and you just enjoyed what you were doing? This is um, the kickoff of season two. And already we're going into a really interesting and new place. The fact that there is actually a, a third way, so to speak, because you have those people, arguably arrogant people who are just don't have imposter syndrome because their self-belief is so high. They think they're so awesome. And um, we all know people like that. And then you have the people that have imposter syndrome, which are have their their light dimmed internally all the time, which is a tragedy because it stops them from being the best version of themselves. But there is a third choice, which is the humble realist. Given that third choice, finally, you know, for my next pang of doubt, which is just around the corner, as a humble realist, what should I say to myself? Yeah, well, I was going to ask Graham if you could give me a specific kind of conversation you might have in your head or a situation where the feelings might come up that next time you think you're going to get that pang of doubt. Sure. I mean, so I, I would say in our industry, imposter season is about to begin. <laughs> <laughs> Award season. Yes, yeah. basically. <laughs> so, you know, um, our version of the Oscars is the Cannes Lions. That's in June. It's your time to sort of man up and deliver. It's the ultimate festival of external validation. And um, I think all creatives, you know, feel the self-doubt because you just don't know. Rightly or wrongly, it's how you are measured and how you are judged. There are lists, there are rankings, you know, every single imposterism sign you could wish for is about to occur. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great example because... Only one person's going to win in the different categories, right? I mean, that's yeah. the reality. So everyone else did a good job. They were creative. They, they, they were in the running, but there's only one winner. It doesn't mean ob- objectively that they're the best, but that's who, that's who they picked. You know, it's kind of like sports. It's like somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. Mm. Right? So the, the losing team, you can be crying on the bench. And I'm not saying you're not crushingly disappointed, right, if you don't win, but it's what you do with that, I think, that really matters. 
you know, that if, again, in sports, what do you do? You go watch the, the game tape, you go get more coaching, you work harder, you, you know, you practice and, and you say, I'll get them next time. Uh, and so I think it's about how resilient we can be, how quickly we can shake things off, how quickly we can, I have this whole list of rights in my book. I have the right to make a mistake. I have a right to have an off day to achieve at the level I'm comfortable with. You know, it's like 25 rights uh, that I invite people to, to recognize that we all have and we often don't allow ourselves. So yeah, you are in a field where you're going to have those moments, especially I love imposter season is coming up, right? <laughs> because it's that highly, like we just all watch the Oscars. So uh, yes, yeah. enough said about that. Um, but yeah, you're, it makes sense that you would have those, those feelings because you're working incredibly hard and you're in a scenario where only one person gets to win. And it may not be you. And that sucks. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Except the fact that even being in the running is pretty awesome, right? That's, I completely agree with that. Guys, this, that was great. Thank you so much. And lovely to meet you, Valerie. Appreciate your time so much. I know it's late for you. That was yeah, excellent. And brilliant to see you again, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me back on my Thank you, guys. Take All care. Right, Have a good day. The Imposterist is produced by Andrew Stevenson at We Love Jam Studios, the best music and sound house in Australia. The theme music that you're listening to now was created by Hilton Mode of the same company. If you would like to catch up on the other episodes in this series or previous, visit theimposterist.com. For all other updates or to make contact, follow us on Instagram at the underscore imposterist.